The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. I am truly impressed, and I'm not easily impressed. In all my years as the proprietor of Quark's Bar, Grill, Gaming House, and Hollow Suite Arcade, I have never seen such a glowing employee performance report. I'm meaning to look at this. In three months, no customer has filed a single complaint against you. You haven't spilled a drink, mixed up a food order, or shortchanged a bill. I take my job very seriously. And yet you always manage to wear a friendly smile. That's because I like my work. I'm happy to be here. And it shows. The customers love you. Your fellow Dava girls love you. Even the Ferengi waiters sing your praises. And you know why? Because you're nice. <laughs> I try to be. You're nice to the customers. You're nice to the Dabo girls. You're nice to the Ferengi waiters. You're nice to everyone. Almost everyone. You mean I've offended someone? Look closely, Alora. Can't you see the pain in my eyes? But I'm always nice to you. I think you could be nicer. How much nicer? Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, April the 18th, 2019. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Our Star Trek Deep Space Nine opener today represents a hashtag MeToo moment if ever there was one. I wonder what the Ferengi might have thought about today's political gender wars and the hashtag MeToo phenomenon, which are both distractions designed to advance a Borg-like collectivist society. Last week we discussed socialism's many facades. When looking at the many faces of socialism, one of its forms that few see as being socialism is its agenda against human sexuality. It's no coincidence that George Orwell cited the Anti-Sex League as being an intricate part of his Orwellian socialist society of the future. Being anti-sex is critical to all truly collectivist philosophies. From the whole so-called hashtag MeToo movement to the gender identity fraud to the idea that all women must be believed to feminism and redefinitions of consent, all of these are just part of the greater whole that is the political hallmark of the left. And it's just part of our topic of discussion today that will get underway right after we remind you to write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes and follow us on SoundCloud, Hear us on WBCQ and Channel 292 Shortwave. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, our archived broadcasts, and of course, where we encourage you to offer your financial support and in so doing become part of our effort to enlighten others about the true nature of freedom and capitalism. You know, the last time I really discussed the hashtag MeToo movement was in conjunction with the last or latest trials of Bill Cosby, 
whose story still has not ended in this regard, and yes, I still maintain that Cosby has been the victim of a great feminist injustice, and that society itself was injured by the ideology and means used to put him in jail. Bill Cosby was perhaps the highest profile victim of the hashtag MeToo phenomenon, and I was already commenting on the glaring injustices perpetrated against Cosby way back when he was on his last North American stand-up comedy tour several years back. While there's not much to add to his case at this point in time, I will comment a bit more on it later in the show today. found this item in the National Post from March 6th of this year, written by female writer Rowan Pelling, and the headline reads, Is forgiveness possible in the hashtag MeToo era? And I quote, Emma Thompson has withdrawn from a film on learning that she would be working under a creative head who'd been reported for sexual harassment. In her letter of resignation, which was published in the Los Angeles Times, she questioned Skydance Animation for their appointment. If a man has been touching women inappropriately for decades, why would a woman want to work for him if the only reason he's not touching them inappropriately now is that it says in his contract he must behave quote-unquote professionally? It's easy to understand her frustration. Hashtag MeToo was a cultural tsunami that swept away some of the landscape while other elements stood firm or were quietly resurrected. Which in many people's eyes appears to be the case with John Lasseter, the former chief creative officer of Disney's Pixar Animation Studios, who departed Pixar in mid-2018 after a six-month sabbatical following allegations of sexual misconduct, what Lasseter termed missteps. If you believe it's vital people admit to their misdemeanors, address the consequences, and apologize to those affected, then you must surely believe in the possibility of redemption. Can a man like Lassiter never return to his profession in a senior role, or is the logic here he hasn't done enough penance? And who gets to decide? Of course, to some degree, the extent of redemption will depend on the severity of the offenses. If ever there was a case for spending the rest of your life looking after orphans in Calcutta, Harvey Weinstein's the man to volunteer for it. Lassiter, however, is a slightly different case. He's admitted his sins, apologized, and some former colleagues say they'd be prepared to work with him again. Reading through the reports, Lassiter was a deluded boss who didn't realize or take the time and decency to consider how much his female colleague's skin crawled at his unwanted approaches. His worst behavior seems to have happened when drunk. Clasps attempts to kiss women on the mouth, and crass, suggestive comments. I'm not defending any of it, but it should be placed in context of the pre-hashtag MeToo age when many women found it hard to voice their true feelings about this kind of infringement. I've certainly been guilty of smiling through gritted teeth when a male colleague made lavicious come-ons or touched my knee while he clearly regarded it as a compliment. What worries me is that by focusing on identifying hashtag MeToo offenders and keeping them in the court of public opinion, we're overlooking a more prevalent class of miscreant. TV and film companies are rife with monster bosses, breakdowns are common, and it's galling to reflect Weinstein's day-to-day -day oppression of his cowering staff would never have brought about his downfall without the sexual element. Nor is the bullying only by men. I know several men in the arts who've been reduced to tears by their female execs' unreasonable demands. It would be truly revolutionary to see all deeply unsavory workplace behavior treated with rigor.
My guess is some of the sexual harassers can and will be rehabilitated because they didn't realize they were filthy bores, and their wives and daughters and female friends will make sure they change. But the psychos will just look for a new group of people to terrorize, end quote. Well, I'm not too sure who the psychos are. The bosses who are bossy or the promoters of the hashtag MeToo movement? I'm more inclined to think that it's the latter. After reading that commentary, though, I'm left with very little sympathy for the assumed victims, quote-unquote, of this kind of behavior. First, quote, if a man has been touching women inappropriately for decades, why would a woman want to work for him? Well, it seems to me that if this inappropriate touching has been going on for decades and nothing was said about it until the hashtag MeToo era, then that constitutes a certain degree of acceptance, doesn't it? And quote-unquote inappropriate sexual behavior is not based solely on the nature of the behavior itself. If a man's touching a woman in the workplace and she likes it and encourages it, is that same behavior still inappropriate, quote-unquote? And in the absence of any overt complaint about the behavior, on what grounds can it be assumed that it's behavior worthy of public rebuke or that it was unwanted in the first place? Remember, we're not talking about any sort of actual rape here, nor is that part of the hashtag MeToo movement's consideration. Yet that is constantly the subtle inference. In referring to Lassiter, if, quote, his worst behavior seems to have happened when drunk, clasps, attempts to kiss women on the mouth, and crass suggestive comments, then I have to ask why this kind of behavior is even being brought to our attention. Surely these are private matters that should be dealt with out of the public eye. But it is the public campaign which is the real goal and objective here. The greater socialist left out to destroy all relevant distinctions between what is consensual and what is not. By describing hashtag me too as a cultural tsunami, we forget who and how that tsunami was created and promoted. It was promoted by the left and by the feminist movement of the left. We've documented it in great detail on this show. And an attempt, quote unquote, to kiss a woman on the mouth is not a crime, nor is an act of actual kissing a crime under most circumstances. As long as the person to which the kisser is attracted has the power to say no and walk away, well, there's nothing to see here. Yet we, the public, are forced to see it daily in our news reports and commentaries. Quote, I've certainly been guilty of smiling through gritted teeth when a male colleague made a lavicious come on or touched my knee while he clearly regarded it as a compliment, end quote, writes Rowan Pelling. Well then, as far as I'm concerned, you consented to the behavior, and worse, you even encouraged it. How is he to know that you didn't like it if you were smiling, and you were acting like you enjoyed it? What's the guy supposed to do? Read your mind? The assumption that 100% of the responsibility for this kind of unwanted behavior rests on the assumed perpetrator who even the writer admits, quote, regarded it as a compliment. I mean, the person thinks he's doing something nice, right? It's ludicrous. And being a filthy bore is a far cry from being a criminal rapist or being guilty of sexual assault. Why are these distinctions not being made? How is, are all these things being treated the same? It seems to me that the real assault going on here is against our intelligence and our sense of morality. So right now, for their take on the whole hashtag MeToo movement, 
Here are Candace Owens and Roseanne Barr, as heard on March 3rd's PragerU Candace Owens Show. First of all, let me tell you, Mike Tyson, who's hilarious and a friend for a long time, he calls it the YouTube movement. <laughs> the YouTube movement, meaning? YouTube. Like, they're going to get YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Yeah. I'm like, hello, do you yeah. know your own history? You no, really want to you, you really want to just give them like mm-hmm. unfettered permission to to say something happened and you're gonna believe them. And the the somebody asked me, it was a Washington Post, they're working on a really big hit piece on me at the moment. Do you think that white supremacy exists? And I said, the closest thing I've ever seen to it in my life is the fem the radicalized feminist movement. Uh, I can agree. I, I've been paying attention to the, the, the growth, Kesha in the back of a courtroom crying, just believe her. The believe women thing has has been building up and I've been like, this is getting crazy. It is crazy. And women have to be the one to take it down. It's no, like up it, to us to say yeah, something about well, it. Well, I said it yesterday, I'll tell you what I said. Uh, she says something to me about, well, you know, they, they were there in the room because they thought they were going to get a job 15 years ago. Oh, yeah, no. It's like, cause, well, because they're hoes. Uh, have you have you lived? Have you seen like the way that women like, use sex together? if you don't run get- out the room and go, excuse me, you don't talk to me that, you don't do that to me, excuse me, and leave. But you stayed around because you're like, well, I thought maybe he was going to give me a writing job. Well, you ain't nothing but a hall. Right. That's, but I said that when, when like, the Louis C.K., it might have been the Louis C.K. thing That's or another scandal that too. happened. And I was reading the article, and they, we were in his hotel room at 3 a.m. in the morning. My first question, yeah. what the hell right. were you doing in his hotel room? What, yeah. goes, what happens at 3 a.m. in the morning in a man's hotel room? Business meetings? You, uh, yeah. He was just going to give me career advice, you uh-huh. know? And, and I, I think it's crappy that women are pretending that, that some of these people are They're hoping- pretending that they didn't go to trade sexual favors for money. There you know? was a time as a feminist when I was, you know, way back at that bookstore, when I was like, no, we don't do that. We have respect for ourselves and we stick together. But that all went to hell too. Well, I think feminism ultimately needs to be about truth telling. I'm not, in, I'm not it into sure garnering does. power against men. That's not feminism. Stop no, calling it feminism. Not. That's some radicalized women's that's white women's right. movement, as I say. I call it, it called the white, white women's, women's march. Movement. That's what I say too. Now I have two sons, so this is my, you know, of, uh, you know. One's 23, one's 40, and I got uh, five grandsons. So I have a different view on how women are than a lot of these other types, you know? Right. Because I know a hoe when I see one. And I'm telling you, <laughs> they come from my boys because my boys, you know, I'm their mom and they're, you know, we have a little bit of money. So I got a, a eagle eye for this thing. And I know because, like, I, and they need to be called out. Right. They really, really do. Right. And that's privilege, too. Whole privilege. There, there, there really is. And that's what it is when, when they come out 50 years later and yeah. say that they were in some mantle tall at 3 a.m. and he made a sexual advance. And nobody asks the question, hey, what were you doing at 3 a.m.? I've never had a boss say to me, hey, Candace, could you stop by at 3 a.m. in the morning at my hotel room and I would not send off every red flag in my head. Yeah, hello. You, you, know you what, go like this, um, no. Right. Like, I, I'm shocked to find out that men are attracted to women and they made a pass at me in their hotel room at 3 a.m. It's just that women are pissed because they, they weren't attracted to the guy that did. Or they didn't get the career. 
So then they go 30 years later, they go, you know what? My career actually never did take off. So I'm going to hop on this bandwagon and say that, you know, something horrible happened to me. And it actually, the reason why I think that this is what we're talking about here is actually real feminism is because what we're protecting are real victims, the real victims, because there are women who actually get raped. There are men that are actually predators and they are no longer there. There are men who get raped and there are men who get raped. And that's what, that's what broke me off from feminists a million years ago when I had my first show, I think it was 96. They were telling me, like, two things you can't say, Roseanne, that there are boy victims and that women are predators. That's what they told me. Wow. I'm like, well, then count me out, man. Count me out, because it's not true. Hello, there's such a thing called truth it is and and to pretend that women are like we're all these victims walking around and we have no idea what we're doing and we just were there at 3 a.m in the hotel room i can't stand it it's so dishonest and and if i could pick every single day which on the left you can't you just pick your gender every day but if i i would choose every single day to be a woman again i mean like i do not want to be a man the men are out there fighting the wars they're the ones falling off of roofs and and dying and uh, nobody let me there's like a a meme on the internet that says nobody calls a feminist when there's an emergency (laughs) (laughs) and it's true you know um and and seeing this this anti uh, masculinity is bad no masculinity is great i love masculinity i do too i need a shirt that just says i love masculinity it's great i I love men i i I got a bunch of them in my family you know that i i gave birth to (laughs) on top of being with but um no i love men who love women right right a lot of men don't a lot of women don't like women either. There's some truth. Right. There, and there is some truth. But unfortunately, when you when you are starting to conflate masculinity with rape, which is what's happening. Yeah. Now, like, if you're masculine, then you're a predator. No. Masculinity is, is the opposite of femininity. And I like being feminine, and men should like being masculine. masculine and it's symbiotic, and it's beautiful. And it's now being corrupted yeah. by this whole myth of, like, the white, privileged male predator um, who's masculine. Right? It's, a, it's a horrible time to be a white male right now, by the way, Bob. I'm not interested in being a white male. Mm-mm. When I was in school, I learned what rape actually was. Like, this is before the tide of radical feminism. And it was like, here's, you can be date raped, and then you don't remember things, and you're dragged, you're in an alley. And rape was a very serious word. Now, it's like, I got drunk last night, and I slept with someone, and I kind of regret it. So I'm going to go to the police. And they're being taught that that's rape. And no, no, that's regret, sweetheart. Like, somebody needs to, that is, there's a difference between rape and regret. And now they're making even that. If a man is attracted to a woman, it's it's somehow becoming something that is is dirty and disgusting. And my son just graduated from college, and he called me from there, and he's like, "Man, he went to a liberal college, and he couldn't take it. <laughs> He'd draw these cartoons and send them home to me all the time about the people around there. But he's like, "Okay, I got it. They've they've educated me. Everything is rape, unless she unless." she demands that I have sex with her. But even if she demands it, that can still be rape because now there's a thing on college campuses about you can revoke consent after you've had sex. Oh my God. I read an article on this and it was, it was stunning. No, I, I just am not going to send my kids to, to the university because I, I'm, I'm probably going to have a little boy and I'm just going to be like, I'm sorry. Like, it just, there's just no point in sending you out into the world. But I, you do have to feel bad <laughs> for the women too because they're mm-hmm. learning sure. it. 
they're learning that, they're, that it is it's rape. So they're not doing it to be conniving. They're being taught that that's not con- conniving. That that's normal. And 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 sh- a, sh- a little bit of shame is good. So yeah. you amend your behavior. So if you wake up and you regret doing something and you feel shameful because you drank too much and you went home with someone that you otherwise wouldn't have gone home with, that's a good remedy for you not doing it the next night. Right, right? exactly. And yet now we're handing everybody excuses. Right. It wasn't your fault, it was this. And and so you go out and you drink the, the same way because what, men, are, should, we, should men carry breathalyzers? Like, are they not drunk? <laughs> Is this, does it not work both ways? Like, And I just don't understand the world that women are comfortable with creating for men like they are not dropped off from the stork i'm assuming you had your child men come from women this this is the society that we have to raise little boys in and it's tough the little boys it's tough to raise the little boys too because they got it in for them right and your son was in in the schools in my grandsons they go to school where they have to live with all that uh whatever we're going to call it leftist dogma yeah that was from a March 3rd Prager U conversation that took place on the Candace Owens show with Roseanne Barr. And leftist dogma is the perfect and correct way to describe all of the BS being foisted upon our sense of reason and rationality. You know, when they talked about what happens at 3 a.m. in a man's hotel room, business meetings, and Barr says they're pretending that they didn't go to trade sexual favors for money. Well, that pretty much summed up 90% of the allegations against Bill Cosby that I investigated at the time. In every case, at best, regret was the motivation for an accuser's allegations. Almost all of them said they were going to Cosby's room to discuss career possibilities. So for those of you who are relatively new to our show, you might not be aware that during Bill Cosby's last comedy tour across North America, which also saw him perform in my own hometown of London, Ontario, we broadcast a series of shows over the course of several months looking deeply into over 30 of Cosby's accusers individually and concluded that in each case of allegations there was no evidence to convict Cosby of anything. And yet they keep leaving those people on this list of long list of accusers that apparently was what was used to justify many of the other charges against him. I spent twice as long looking into the circumstances surrounding these allegations as the last jury that convicted Cosby spent on his conviction. Like, I know I put at least 120 hours of research into 30-some-odd accusers. And most importantly, every one of my own conclusions about Cosby's accusers were based solely on the original stories as told by the accusers themselves, not on any of my own preconceived notions, which actually, in my case, assumed that Cosby was likely guilty of what he was being accused of, nor on any statements made by Cosby or his defenders. And I couldn't find a single credible allegation, and you can still hear all of the sordid details on our website at justrightmedia.org. Just search for Bill Cosby in the Subjects or Topics research field. From the very first day of my own investigation into the allegations being made against Cosby, it became obvious to me that there was a clear and openly stated agenda geared at replacing the principles of a legal court of justice with the court of public opinion, and an exclusively leftist and extremely totalitarian agenda to create a concept called affirmative consent, which like all words that don't need adjectives actually means not not consent. Cosby agrees to settlement, reads the April 8th article in my London Free Press, Seven Women Accused Comic of Defamation. 
written by Mary Claire Dale. Bill Cosby has agreed to settle lawsuits filed by seven women who say he defamed them when he accused them of lying about allegations of sexual misconduct. Now, the important thing to realize here is that in this case, like here are women who are publicly accusing Cosby of rape in the court of public opinion, and then when Cosby says, stop doing that, he's the guy that gets sued for stopping them from spreading false allegations in public without having any sort of due process or any sort of defense offered in his, on his behalf. This kind of stuff should not be going on in the public forum. This is a frightening trend that's going on. That's the hashtag MeToo movement and what it's all about. More on that later. But back in February, I received a suggestion from listener Eva R., who wrote to let us know that, quote, this may be good material for your radio broadcasts. And it sure was. Scary as hell, too. And what she sent me was a link to a written article called The Nature of Sex, written by Andrew Sullivan. It's all about the gender issue and debate. And the last time we looked at the gender debate, of course, was probably in connection with our guests Jordan Peterson or Lindsay Shepard and Rick, Rick Mehta, etc., who have been sort of put on trial for daring to say that men and women are different. Quote, this is, this is from February 1st, 2019, The Nature of Sex by Andrew Sullivan. It might be a sign of the end times or simply a function of our currently scrambled politics, but earlier this week, four feminist activists, three from a self-described radical feminist organization, Women's Liberation Front, appeared on a panel at the Heritage Foundation. Together, they argued that sex was fundamentally biological and not socially constructed, and that there's a difference between women and trans women that needs to be respected. For this, they were given a rousing round of applause by the Trump supporters, religious right members, natural law theorists, and conservative intellectuals who comprised much of the crowd. I've no doubt that many will see these women as anti-trans bigots or appeasers of homophobes and transphobes or simply deranged publicity seekers. The moderator, Ryan Anderson, said they were speaking at heritage because no similar liberal or leftist institution would give them space or time to make their case. And it's true that trans-exclusionary radical feminists, or TERFs as they're known, are one minority that is actively not tolerated by the LGBTQ establishment and often demonized by the gay community. But what interests me here is their underlying argument, which deserves to be thought through, because it's an argument that seems to me to contain a seed of truth. Hence, I suspect, the intensity of the urge to suppress it. The title of the Heritage Panel Conversation, The Inequality of the Equality Act, refers to the main legislative goal for the Human Rights Campaign, the largest LGBTQ lobbying group in the U.S. The proposed Equality Act, a federal non-discrimination bill that has been introduced multiple times over the years in various formulations, would add quote-unquote gender identity to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, rendering that class protected by anti-discrimination laws just as sex is. The TERF argument is that viewing gender identity as interchangeable with sex and abolishing clear biological distinctions between men and women is actually a threat to lesbian identity and even existence, because it calls into question who is actually a woman. <laughs> if the concept of a man is deconstructed so that someone without a penis is a man, then homosexuality itself is deconstructed. 
Transgender people pose no threat to us, and the vast majority of gay men and lesbians wholeheartedly support protections for transgender people. But transgenderist ideology, including postmodern conceptions of sex and gender, is indeed a threat to homosexuality because it is a threat to biological sex as a concept. We just have to abandon the faddish notion that sex is socially constructed or entirely in the brain, that sex and gender are unconnected, that biology is irrelevant, and that there's something called an LGBTQ identity, when in fact the acronym contains extreme internal tensions and even outright contradictions. So on this side of our upcoming bumper from that Heritage Foundation event held on January 28, 2019, we'll be hearing part of what Julia Beck a self-identified lesbian and former leftist has to say about the whole sexual agenda of the left. And on the other side of our bumper, as we return, we'll be hearing from a panelist, Jennifer Chavez, who is reading from two separate letters written by parents whose children have decided that their gender is the wrong one. To call their experience with authorities a nightmare would be an understatement of the grossest magnitude. What's happening to their kids because of this gender nonsense is nothing short of outright child abuse, and it should scare the living hell out of every single parent of young children listening to this show today. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Julia Beck. I live in Baltimore City, and I am a lesbian. You might be thinking to yourself, why is a lesbian speaking of the Heritage Foundation? And I ask myself the same thing. <laughs> but, um, but my answer is pretty simple. There is no place for me. I am politically homeless. So believe me when I say I am grateful for the opportunity to share my story. My story is as unbelievable and absurd as it is commonplace. I got kicked off of the Baltimore Mayor's LGBTQ Commission as the only lesbian simply for stating biological facts. After a months-long witch hunt, I was found guilty of violence. My crime? Using male pronouns to talk about a convicted male rapist who identifies as transgender and prefers female pronouns. It doesn't matter that he sexually assaulted two women in a women's prison after being transferred there on account of his gender identity. Oh no, it is far more criminal for me to call a male rapist he than it is for him to rape. The man who led my inquisition also identifies as transgender. He is the president of the Baltimore Transgender Alliance and claims to be a lesbian. I find that almost funny, almost funny, um, because everything he does makes life for women, girls, and lesbians worse. Last June, during Pride Week, his organization, the BTA, sponsored a public event where lesbians would be, quote, hung by their necks, end quote. He advocates for commercial sex work, of which he has no experience as a white trust fund baby. He also inhibits the work of on-the-ground women organizations for not using inclusive language. I joined the LGBTQ Commission to give lesbians a voice in our local government, to advise the mayor on our, on our underrepresented issues. After a few meetings, I ran for a leadership position and I won. I was one of two co-chairs on the Law and Policy Committee, but that did not last long. 
After the BTA president accused me of transphobia, the mayor's liaison swiftly scheduled an emergency meeting to assess my fitness as a leader. One gay man at the meeting said, biological sex was a thing of the past. <laughs> I looked at him and asked, how can we be homosexual if sex is fake? Um, <laughs> I kid you not, that really happened. <laughs> Another gay man disagreed with the dictionary definition of woman as adult human female. These men could not support their flimsy arguments. The next speaker, though, she broke my heart. <laughs> she had just survived a hysterectomy, shaking and, shaking and complaining of hot flashes. She said she was not and had never been a woman. Quote, it doesn't make me any less of a man that I have a vulva. It's there and it's masculine and it's a male and it's a man, end quote. As she said this, my accuser snapped his fingers as if we were at a poetry reading. It was so fake and performative, he didn't care at all for what she had endured in the name of gender identity. But their decision was made long before that night and I was voted out. The meeting made one thing crystal clear. Inclusivity means all voices are welcome, except women's, except lesbians. It's unfortunate that so many people are truly confused about gender and sex, so I'd like to break it down right now. There are only three sexualities, homosexual, heterosexual, bisexual, um, all the hip new identities in the alphabet soup, like non-binary, gender fluid, pansexual, are not actually sexualities. Neither is transgender. Yet everything is about the T now, entirely eclipsing the LG and B. The T is diametrically opposed to the first three letters in the acronym, and especially to the L. Sexualities are based on sex, but gender identities are based on stereotypes. They have nothing to do with same-sex attraction. In fact, they undermine and erase homosexuals. People are not attracted to genders. Yet every lesbian I know has been pressured to accept males into our dating pools and dwindling spaces. In order to validate their gender identity, men who call themselves trans women try to break the, quote, cotton ceiling, which refers to lesbians' underwear. The completely illogical statement that trans women are women is recited like a big brother mantra in every leftist space. No one really believes it. But saying so will jeopardize your career, your community, and your life. Even people with disorders of sexual development, commonly called intersex conditions, are either one sex or the other. To deny this fact means we are unable to name, address, and fix systemic sex-based oppression and exploitation. It used to be that if you did not follow traditional gender roles, being the perfect pretty princess or mean macho boy, then conservatives would try to change your personality to match your body. But now it's worse. Liberals are trying to change your body to match your personality. As a lesbian, using a radical feminist analysis, I want to do away with both. I want all people to love themselves and live however they want in the bodies that they were born as.
I was shocked when my 13-year-old daughter told me that she was really my transgender son. She had no masculine interest and hated all sports. But as a smart, quirky teen on the autism spectrum, she had a long history of not fitting in with girls. Where did she get the idea she was transgender? From a school presentation, a school where over 5% of the entire student body called themselves trans or non-binary, where several students were already on hormones and one had a mastectomy at the age of 16. In my daughter's world, real life and online, transgender identities are common and hormones and surgeries are no big deal. I took her to a gender clinician seeking expert guidance. Instead, he accepted her new identity and told me I must refer to my daughter with masculine pronouns, call her by a masculine name, and buy her a binder to flatten her breasts. No therapy, no consideration of the social factors that obviously affected her thinking. I was directed to put her on puberty-blocking drugs and was falsely assured that these drugs were well-studied and a perfectly safe way for her to explore gender. I was told that if I did not comply, she would be at higher risk of suicide. I have nowhere to go for proper help. Therapists are actively trained and socially pressured not to question these increasingly common identities. In Washington, D.C., and many states with so-called conversion therapy bans, just questioning a child's belief that she is the opposite sex is against the law. I have been living this nightmare for over four years, and despite my best efforts, my daughter plans to medically transition when she turns 18 later this year. Parents like me must remain anonymous to maintain our children's privacy and because we face legal repercussions if our names are revealed. Parents who do not support their child's gender identity risk being reported to Child Protective Services and possibly losing custody of their children. In New Jersey, the Department of Ed Education officially encourages schools to report such parents. Meanwhile, the media glamorizes and celebrate, celebrates trans-identified children while ignoring stories like mine. I have written to well over 100 journalists begging them to write about what is happening to kids. I wrote to my representative and senators but have been ignored by their staff. My online posts about my daughter's story have been deleted and I have been permanently banned in an online forum. As a lifelong Democrat, I am outraged by my former party and find it ironic that only conservative news outlets have reported my story without bias or censorship. We parents are ignored and vilified while our children are suffering in the guise of inclusivity and acceptance. I hope that some open-minded democratic lawmakers will wake up to the fact that they are complicit in harms to vulnerable kids and ask themselves this question. Why are physicians medicalizing children in the name of an unproven, malleable gender identity? And why are lawmakers enshrining gender identity into state and federal laws? In August of 2017, our seventh grade daughter came home from sleepaway camp believing she was a boy. She had a new vocabulary and a strong desire to change her name and pronouns. We never anticipated that we needed to ask the camp if she was going to be in a cabin with other females who were socially transitioning to boys. We suspect that our daughter assumed that since my wife and I are lesbians and liberal in our politics, that we would support this new identity. We may be lesbians, but we are not confused about biology. She tried to convince us with a very scripted explanation 
that she had always felt like a boy. But we had never once seen or heard from her any evidence of this new feeling. We listened to her, gave her the space to talk about her feelings, and tried hard not to convey to her that we were utterly horrified by this revelation. As we began to try to find information to make sense of this, we found evidence of a social contagion all over the internet. YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Reddit supplied a how-to guide and handbook on transitioning, complete with trans stars like Jazz Jennings and Riley J. Dennis, many with thousands of followers. We are in no way out of the woods. Some parents dealing with this issue view us as lucky because she is so young, giving us and her more time to work through her discomfort. Maybe we will be, but we are facing this ever-growing storm of a social contagion without any help from mainstream media or the negligent FDA, not to mention the pathetic capitulation of our physicians and mental health professionals. You're listening to Just Right Broadcasting Around the World and Online. And what you just heard was Heritage Foundation panelist Jennifer Chavez this past January speaking not her own words, but reading from two separate letters written by parents sharing their experiences about their children with respect to the gender agenda. And to give you some idea of the new political climate we currently live in, those parents were forced to remain anonymous about sharing these true accounts or face legal and social consequences. They've been banned from social media. The mainstream media not only won't tell their stories, but is the enemy that they are fighting. And of course, there's the increasingly heard and experienced phenomenon of how many who considered themselves as being on the left are now only able to find a political home on the right side of the political polarity. What's so interesting about all the censorship and political correctness surrounding a balanced discussion of the whole gender issue is how strongly the left will not allow such a discussion to take place. I mean, they can't stop at all, of course, at least yet, (laughs) but they're working on it. And this is an issue that transcends the quote-unquote nature of sex, representing a complete rejection of reality, which is the law of identity, that if accepted as a social or legal norm, would utterly obliterate one's ability to think, reason, and assume individual responsibility. And that would leave no way to preserve the condition of freedom necessary to a peaceful and prosperous society. The redefinition of objectively defined concepts with subjectively forced fictions is the tyrant's most basic tool of division and disunity. Divide and conquer, trying to legally redefine concepts of sex, long recognized and still verifiable as as being objective, certainly offers us a test tube sample of just how deeply irrational our legislators have become. It's a sign of the dangerous times ahead, assuming they haven't already arrived. I was reminded of Ayn Rand's mind-body dichotomy when hearing Julia Beck's observation that conservatives used to try to change your personality to match your body. Now liberals want to change your body to match your personality. (laughs) Well, we can't just pick and choose definitions on a whim. In order to be valid, definitions must correspond to reality. And in particular, to philosophy's law of identity. You can't call a dog a cat any more than you can just declare a female to be male or vice versa. 
The concepts must match what is physically observable or existent. There are other words that can be used to describe various sexual manifestations of the mind, but hijacking two words, like male and female or man and woman, which have already been assigned their specific definitions, is an act of aggression and even psychological terrorism, if you think about it. The purpose is not to establish new gender identities, but to obliterate the old ones, to obliterate the factual and true sexual identities. And just as if you did it with simple numbers, if some activist suddenly arrived on the scene and insisted that the number seven will actually represent a value that we all have known to be a three, all of mathematics and science would collapse in an instant. So to call the left sinister is to do it the honor it has earned. This one, headline, Canada's oldest rape crisis center loses city funding. This is from the National Post of March 19th, written by Tristan Hopper. And the subheading reads, Shelter refuses to admit trans women. Quote, Vancouver Rape Relief and Women's Shelter, Canada's oldest rape crisis center, has been stripped of city funding after refusing to rescind its policy of only serving female-born women. In a statement, the organization said they were the victim of discrimination against women in the name of inclusion and accused Vancouver City Council of trying to coerce us to change our position. Meanwhile, the measure was cheered by activists who have long singled out Vancouver rape relief as a bastion of trans-exclusionary behavior. The defunding is the latest flashpoint in an ongoing struggle between the transgender activists and the feminist organizations who maintain that female-born and male-born women should remain distinct groups. (laughs) Men are strictly banned from spaces operated by Vancouver Rape Relief, and the organization has previously argued that their clients, all of whom are recovering from male violence, do not feel comfortable while in the presence of someone who used to live as a man. The B.C. Court of Appeals ultimately ruled in favor of Vancouver rape relief, and a further appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada was denied, end quote. Well, thank goodness for that. But I have piles of newspaper clippings relating stories with similar sex and gender themes. And these stories reflect the same abusive ideologies of the left that increasingly leftists themselves are becoming victim to. So they have no other direction in which to turn but right. And what's significant is that those on the right have been displaying a willingness and openness to allow that discussion, something that the left has continually insisted is not possible because, don't you know, right-wing censorship. Which brings us full circle back to the hashtag MeToo phenomenon. Janice Fiamengo is a Canadian professor in the Department of English at the University of Ottawa, and she recently celebrated the posting of her 100th YouTube presentation entitled All Anti-Feminism All the Time on April 3rd, from which we draw our following audio bites. Professor Fiamengo appeared as our guest on Just Right back on June 27, 2013, show number 306, along with the late Ryan Doxtatter on issues of fathers in the family. Now here's her take on the meaning and significance of the hashtag MeToo campaign. In general, it's clear that the MeToo movement involves a dramatic walk back of what feminist leaders have said for years about yes means yes and no means no. Now, yes does not necessarily mean yes anymore. It doesn't mean yes if the woman has been drinking 
and has been deemed unable to consent, it doesn't mean yes if there's any kind of power differential in the relationship. It doesn't mean yes if the woman regrets her decision to be sexual. Now the net of unhappy and degrading and damaging sex is being cast ever more widely to include the nominally consensual, with the result that, as Catherine McKinnon hoped, much normal sex is being redefined as abuse. In my opinion, this is the terrifying direction in which Me Too is heading to define more and more categories of unhappy female experience as male sexual abuse. A key plank of the feminist agenda has always been to give women the power, backed by social, state, and legal sanction, to determine the nature of every interaction, sexual and non-sexual, between men and women. The power to define reality is the greatest power it is possible to have. And feminism's endgame, not that far from being realized, will render men near voiceless in both the public and private spheres. I started speaking out in the first place because I was appalled by the feminist insistence on men's guilt in the wake of any woman's complaint. This was the era of the Duke lacrosse scandal, mattress girl, the UVA rape hoax. Feminists were always searching for the ultimate symbol of male sexual brutality, and no matter how many times their vivid illustrations were shown to be fake, they continued to insist that false allegations are extremely rare. This was the case long before the fall of 2017, and I made videos highlighting some high-profile sexual assault allegations in both Canada and the United States, arguing that academic feminist ideas about affirmative consent and the rejection of so-called victim stereotypes have had a profound influence on judges and on lawmakers, leading to increasing restrictions on men's ability to defend themselves at trial. Then things got much worse in 2017 with the Me Too movement as women pushed even harder for their voices alone to be able to end careers and destroy reputations, and a tsunami of allegations and social media mobbings followed. Believing women became an article of faith, and anyone who dissented was sought out for a heretic's social death. In the year and a half since Me Too started, despite frequent predictions of its imminent demise, it shows no sign of slowing down. Indeed, claims about harassment continue, and worried leaders in the domains of law, medicine, academia, business, high-tech, and engineering are busily making the right noises about promoting women, making the workplace safe, punishing perpetrators, and so on. Men now know that if they are accused, very few will step forward to defend them. A few accused men survive the horror, many do not. 
I have made and will continue to make videos chronicling the complete breakdown of due process and basic fairness brought about by the Me Too movement. Unlike some others who are hopeful that feminism will eventually run out of steam or that rational dialogue will win out, I don't actually see the madness of our time abating. On the contrary, I believe it will worsen. Sanctioned hatreds have no mechanism for self-regulation. Even the prospect of societal breakdown has no damping effect. In fact, societal breakdown is the conscious or unconscious goal of many who drive these movements. Such people cannot be negotiated with, only defeated. And I fear that the forces of reason and truth are far too scattered, too timid, too internally divided and too uncertain of their own rightness to be able to quash the destructive energies that feminism and other social justice movements have released. Of course, I hope to be wrong and that's why we want to keep on making videos. Not exactly the most optimistic prediction for the future, but a reasonable one based on the past behaviors of both the left and the right wing. While the left offends, the right pretends. They pretend that the left can be reasoned with if only such an opportunity could present itself. But as Robert Vaughn and I were forced to conclude several weeks back, that's not likely to happen. And it appears that Professor Fiamengo has arrived at the same conclusion when she observed, quote, in fact, societal breakdown is the conscious or unconscious goal of many who drive these movements. Such people cannot be negotiated with, only defeated. And of course, she's talking about the left, which Robert and I were talking about in broader terms. That is the big picture here. And when she predicted that the Me Too movement is out to define more and more categories of unhappy female experience as male sexual abuse, she was practically defining the agenda that I discovered underway when originally looking into the Cosby accusers. One thing I forgot to mention with regard to my past research into the Cosby accusers, that period in time was my personal discovery of just how fake the mainstream media coverage of the Cosby case actually was, and then my suspicions arose that that too was a phenomenon that had to be bigger than we all thought it was. There was zero investigative journalism, which was exactly one of Cosby's earliest complaints when he refused to cooperate with the National Enquirer way back when. We discussed that particular story during our research. Now some final observations as we wrap up. The complete breakdown of due process and basic fairness brought about by the Me Too movement, as cited by Fiamengo, is a key element of the grander left and grander feminist movement. The court of public opinion is being held without one side in that court of public opinion being given an equal or balanced voice. That's the problem with the court of public opinion. Censorship and fake news end up determining the content of that public opinion, and if you've never observed the process firsthand as I have, then there's a fundamental principle that you have to be aware of. Always remember that the only thing that ever gets censored, quote-unquote, by governments is invariably the truth. I witnessed this firsthand during the trial of the Carla Homolka case, whose trial was kept secret from Canadians while American news outlets reported on it openly, and that was in the days before the Internet. 
So in conjunction with the Freedom Party of Ontario, I got personally involved with ex-Ontario Provincial Police Officer Gordon Dom, who was being persecuted by the Ontario government for bringing copies of American newspapers into the country and spreading accurate news and information about the case, which was technically a crime at the time, while spreading false news and information was simply ignored and was never prosecuted. Bulletin boards were the main internet way of communicating, and all kinds of rumors circulated about the Homolka case. Only those that were true ever got banned or prosecuted, so you could always tell which stories had some validity. So if there ever was a demonstration of the old saying that politics is personal, it's certainly in the field of sexuality and laws surrounding sexuality. Above all, the proper concept and context of what constitutes consent has to be enshrined in the law. It has to be taught as a concept recognizing that consent is a condition, not a written contract of some sort. You know, we often speak of living in a democracy where we are all governed with the consent of the governed. It sounds so nice, doesn't it? And it, it is assumed that such consent is obtained through the democratic process of elections when we vote. That's when we consent, right? No, wrong. Because voting is an act of consensus, not one of consent. And with respect to democracies, the consent already exists by virtue of the electorate and the citizenry's acceptance of the rules by which society is governed, the rules of the elections, the rules by which governments form. Consensus is a collective notion. Consent is an individualistic one. And in a lot of ways, what the feminist movement is trying to do is replace the individualistic concept of consent with a much more collective concept. And finally, I can't help but see a parallel between what we've been saying about the political polarity of left and right and the sexual polarity of male and female. The confusion about transgender identity is really not that different than the confusion about the binary and polarized so-called political spectrum. There are only two alternatives. It's a binary option. So let me suggest that there is no trans-political polarity. In this case, some imagined center or middle-of-the-road position when concerned with left and right. Like people who are, in physical reality, one sex, but believe that they are the other sex, that's all in their mind. It's not physically so. And also, when people believe that they're in the center of some political spectrum, that's all in their mind too. It's no different than the case with the binary of male and female. So there are many fronts in socialism's attack on human sexuality, from the hashtag MeToo campaign to gender parity to always believe the woman to the feminization of men to an outright rejection of the male, and ro male role in life to continued calls for wage and employment equality when no such problems exist. All these are examples of the irrationality of the left being applied to sexual issues. There are so many other sexually charged political debates going on that we could have brought into our discussion today from, say, pornography to prostitution to marriage and love and to feminism itself, actually, that those discussions will have to wait for another day. And that's my cue to invite you to join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. 
Color it to black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright and by the way, this isn't just happen in Hollywood. This happens in in life. Okay, I know. no matter what. I say I tried to trade sexual favors for <laughs> a career, but nobody was buying it. And I'm like, you know, come on, this is so unfair. <laughs> so you had to work. I had to completely make unfair. it on talent and good looks completely, alone. <laughs> it's completely unfair. By it the way. is. Yeah, but it's true, and nobody wants to Look talk at about Kamala it. Kamala Harris, who I call Kama Sutra okay. Harris, she. Excuse me. You're, you're, 